Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report and Finance Presenter on ABC News and the Columnist for the New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer Columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are The Money, the Money Cafe. Cafe. Um, yeah, so look, we've got so many questions today. We do. We've They're got good a ones lot of too. Questions, good questions. So we need to keep our blather to <laughs> the minimum at the start. Now, yes. um, uh, I got it. We both got here a bit early today. Everyone to the Money Cafe, and James hopped on the phone to Matt Common. Yes, was a. I presume it was a conference call. Was it? So oh no, just a, it's, they've got a third quarter trading update out this morning. So, yes. and the, the trading quarter, the trading update's fine. It's you know usual CBA. Strong result, um, margins still under pressure. But the big thing he was talking about was interest rates, which is na- natural. And he's uh, since the rate rise last week, he's had a lot of questions from people. You know, the Uber driver, customers in branches, his own staff. He's catching Uber, is he? Yeah. Well, he's been travelling, so yeah. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> Hasn't got a car. That <laughs> oh, apparently not. Him, apparently not. around in in luxury. But interesting. The question is not so much. Um, about how many rate rises are going to come, but but will the market's expectations of rate rises be met? So is there 200 basis points worth of rate rises to come? Now, the CBA's view is that probably not, that there'll be 100 basis points of rises, so say four rises over the next six months, and that will start to slow the economy. You know, inflation might have peaked and, you know, that'll start to – rates will do their job. Uh, part of that is because we have a lot more variable rates in Australia than other markets, and so we're, we are more responsive to rate rises. But um, I think it's a interesting how how in, how in tune people are with rate expectations uh, uh, from the bond market, and and B CBA is taking a very different view from the bond market um, about how quickly the economy will cool slightly. Yeah, well, so Gareth Eds, um, who's the CBA economist. He's actually the lowest among all the economists. He's he's the lowest terminal rate. Yeah, uh, the, that is to say, the rate at which these RBL stop stop increasing. Yeah, and I think he's either one point um, two five or yes, I think he's one point five. One point five. Yeah, yeah 1. and the market's two point five. So no, no. The last time I looked, the market's three. Yeah, sorry. Uh, two two point five sort of is the, in the next consensus. Or so. yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. In the next twelve months. Yeah. And the consensus of the economists are, are kind of two-ish, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's interesting. It's a great question, like how we're an indebted an indebted nation, particularly in our households. So does that work for us in a way in that it will allow the RBA to get their point across and contain inflation faster? Um, yeah. Or, or can we – or can – because we've got these big savings buffers and, and CBA's deposits are up 8.5% in the last quarter, yes. is there is there more cushion and the RBA will have to work harder? So after we finished here today, I'm, I'm running off to record my fortnightly Sunday piece for the news. Yep. And it's about interest rates. And I'm opening by saying – that it's kind of interesting that um, – we have a cost of living crisis in this country because of rising inflation. Yep. Everyone's talking about it. It's the kind of big theme of the election. Yeah. And the RBO's solution to the cost of living crisis is to make it worse. <laughs> make the cost of living more expensive, yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So, the, um, so the only solution we have for inflation is to put up the most important price. Yes. That's a, that's a good you know, way to think and about to, it, yeah. um, And to... So, uh, so increase the suffering that people stop spending as much. Yes. 
that unemployment rises a bit and that uh, companies can't put their prices up as much as they have been because demand has reduced. Yes. Because everyone's suffering. That, I mean, look, I'm just saying that that's, that is it's the... It's very philosophical of you, No, but that's the way it works. Well, that's right. And, and history says it does work, though, right? Uh, of course. Yeah. And, well, in so. fact, history says that it usually ends in recession. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, with the unemployment going to 10% and, and kind of a misery, a misery everywhere. Yeah, inflation calls, though. But it is the sort of great question about... Does inflation come back? Is this transitory or is there, is there things being locked in? Like, I'm going to write about this on the weekend, you know, this great story, I don't know if you heard, but the Japanese have told their citizens to turn off the toilet seat warmers. You know, J- J- Japanese toilets have an, a, an electrical element in the toilet seat which keeps it nice and warm. So, so cold bums... Cold, uh, what? Cold bums don't exist in Japan. No, no, but why, why are they told them to turn it off? Because energy prices are so high. Oh, and energy I see. demand. This is a way of hitting energy demand. So this is a great question. Is that transitory because we've got Ukraine war and, and that'll get sorted out? Or is uh, are things like higher labour costs and higher commodity prices going to be baked in for the next cycle, however long that goes for? Great. It's a, it's a fascinating question. I, I, well, I think... I, I mean, I, I think having a cold bum is a better, a better solution than in, increasing interest rates if you can get away with it. <laughs> Don't you think? Indeed, indeed. <laughs> well, that's uh, yes. Maybe you can add that to your report on on uh, Sunday night. Cold bums. <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, I just uh, while we're on the subject of inflation, it's worth <laughs> noting that um, Martin Wolf had a column in the in the Financial Times mm, great the other day, uh, in which he said the uh, soft landing in the United in the United States. Uh, is virtually impossible. Yeah. Well, yes. And um, so there've been twelve. There have been twelve uh, tightening cycles in the US since 1954, uh, and three of them res- uh, ended in soft landings. Nine recessions. The the margin for error that the that the Fed has at the moment is so tiny. Like they have got to thread the needle. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then lose the needle in a haystack and find it again. That's how hard this is going to be because they're, they're, they're you know, I'm not sure if they're going to raise rates so they sort of break the economy, but already you can see signs that the US is slowing. And, you know, I, I think it's, they're heading for a pretty difficult period. Now, now, what do you think about the markets at the moment, given what's going on? Yeah, I think this is... I remember speaking to someone at the start of the year, I can't remember who it was, but they said the first rate rise everyone takes in their stride, the second rate rise everyone starts to panic. And it's proved exactly right. Like the the first Fed rise, everyone was sort of like, oh, yeah, okay. Second Fed rise, everyone's sort of woken up to this idea that, hang on, they're they're serious here. And we saw overnight inflation figures from in the US that says inflation's not going down quite as fast as people had hoped. So they'll have the Fed's got to keep going. Sure. And the, the the pain of that sort of regime change is is non insignificant, and that's what you're seeing markets react to. They're figuring well, this out. We're in a clear technology bear market. Yeah. I mean, the Nasdaq oh, absolutely down twenty percent. The um, the Australian All Technology Index is down, I think, thirty percent or twenty five percent. Yeah. Bitcoin's down thirty five percent from yeah. its peak. Yeah. Under thirty thousand this morning. Right. So. Yeah, it's, it's, it's clearly, you know, uh, affecting technology stocks, growth stocks in general. Yep. Uh, not so much other 
um, stocks? Well, Australia's held up pretty well, you know, because we've got miners who are still who are going to do well, you know, in a world of supply dislocations, and we've got banks that do better with as interest rate rises. So that that we're, we're a relative safe haven at the moment, which is yeah. nice, but. We'll feel the pressure too, and the trading on the markets, even the local market, it's pretty skittish. Yeah. Pretty nervous. It is. Uh, and the nervousness is not caused by the election, you would imagine, not by other things. Now, just let's talk about the election. Mm. Um, I voted on Tuesday. Excellent. Um, I'm not going to tell you who I voted for, but I did see outside the voting booth <laughs> in my in the Kuyong pre-polling booth, both Josh Frydenberg and Monique Ryan standing side by side. Yes. Handing out vote cards. Were they talking about our twenty dollars bet on the outcome of the of Kuyong? Oh, they were talking about nothing else. <laughs> 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 I did. I, 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 yeah, I hope it's not your vote that sways the uh, outcome of this bet. Uh, that would. Oh, be, I uh, do. That'd, that'd be great. Be... <laughs> How about that? Um, I don't think it will be somehow. What, what? Monique's in front. Monique's in front. Yeah. Yeah, according to the polls. Yes. Yes. Um, does it, is it starting to look like a foregone conclusion to you at the moment? Oh, it's never a foregone conclusion. But I, uh, the, the gap but in the polls, generally. Oh, generally. Uh, overall. Oh, I think it is. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd say so, sure. Yeah. I mean, Morrison's not going to get back from here. The only question is whether it's a hung parliament or Labor wins in its own right. I think it'll be a hung parliament. I think that there'll be another three, three or so independents, maybe four, but sort of probably three, and that makes six independents. Yeah. As we get closer to the uh, election, uh, the the voting day, and, and the sort of polls don't close, do you think there'll be more pressure on the independents to say more about what they're going to do in, no. in, in the result of a hung parliament? No, no, and they don't have to say what they're going to do. <coughs> All no. they need to say, I would suggest, is that they're going to represent their community. Yep, that's the job. Yeah, uh, well, and that's you know, the platform they're running on. That's that's it, and you know, oh, I mean, they they. They made it clear they're on about climate change, integrity commission, uh, and um, a better, uh, better deal for women. Yes, that's really the, the platform. Yes, they have also made it clear though that they're uh, disaffected liberals, liberal voters. So there is, uh, to, to me, there's a there's a debate to be had. It'll be it'll be interesting to see how they individually approach it. Well, it'll be interesting to see whether they do approach it individually. In fact. Uh, or do well, they they're as a group. I know, but um, but you know, when we last had a hung parliament, Tony Tony Windsor and Rob Oakshot negotiated together. Yes, they were independents in separate seats, obviously. True, and, um, but they negoti- negotiated together. Yeah, they, and the and other they certainly weren't tied in the way that these independents are. And the other hung parliament in 1940, also the two guys uh, uh, negotiated together. Right. You, you remember that one well? Uh, <laughs> it was only a little bit before my time. But um, uh, one of them was Arthur, was Arthur Coles, who was um, the founder of Coles. Right. And um, I can't remember what uh, – he was either in, in Henty or Wimmera. The two, the two independent seats in 1940 were Henty and Wimmera. Okay. Henty, Henty is now Goldstein. Right. And uh, they, the two, those two independents supported Robert Menzies in 1940, who was the head of the United Australia Party. Okay. The pre- predecessor to Today's Clive United Palmer. Australia Party. Um, and right. Robert Menzies was Prime Minister for one year in 1940 uh, with the support of the two independents. And then, and then the two independents sacked him right. after 12 months oh. and uh, okay. appointed, uh, put, in John, uh, put in John Scullin. 
Right. So there's nothing new. This is this is where we could be heading back to. Uh, well, exactly. That's right. Yeah. Except there'll be more than two. We've only had two independents in hung parliament so far. It yeah. Could be a bunch of them. And if there's more than two voting as a block, then that's that's going to be quite powerful, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. That's yeah. right. And. Um, you can't see them. I can't see, well, you know, women need to move on, but I can't see them supporting Morrison. No, I think that's, it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, the three issues you spoke about then, climate change, integrity commission, women, it's going to, that, that's hard for, Morrison would have to have some serious gymnastics to shift his positions. And I think also that they would be, they would be conscious that they'd be also supporting Barnaby Joyce. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yes. Which is... Yes. Shall we get into the questions, given how good Let's they are? Let's do that. All right. Well, okay. I'll start. Uh, David uh, says, a few months back after the Lark CEO was dumped, the share price fell and Alan thought it was a screaming buy. Oh, gosh, Alan. Since then, they've appointed I know. an interim of some well, note. Well, I never learn. <laughs> <laughs> Since then, they've appointed an interim of some note in Laura McBain, yet the share price has continued to fall. If the share price is meant to represent the value of the whiskey stored in the barrels, why has it not gone back up to pre-Jeff Bainbridge prices? Now, we should say that Scott Morrison was down at the Lark distillery in Tasmania a few weeks ago and handed them four and a half million bucks to build a new still. Yeah, so did that get the share price up? <laughs> not that I've seen and um, not that David's seen. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what you think, but I think this is just uh, – this is a reflection of uncertainty around this stock. You know, they've, they've had a major trauma and no one's in the market's quite sure what happens next. Uh, that's right. <clears throat> And it's been it's been hit by the general uh, bear market in tech yeah. in growth stocks. Yeah, you know, it's not a technology stock, obviously, but it's it is a luxury it, stock. It's though. a luxury stock, yeah. and you know it's been hit by everything. And and Jeff Bainbridge's job, and now Laura McBain's job, is to sell the business. Yes, the, the, their job is to is to get it ready for sale. Uh, but it, it won't happen you know, next month, but next year or the year after. The job is to sell it to Diageo or Pernod Ricard or whatever it is. Yeah. one of the big liquor companies in the world. And the, and as you've said before, that was always Bainbridge's plan. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and that remains the plan, I presume. I yes. mean, I haven't spoken to Laura McBain yet, but I imagine that's going to be her job. They, mind you, they never do actually confess that their job is to sell the business. No, no. Uh, but but often it is. Yes. I mean, I interviewed somebody yesterday. Oh, yeah, Jackie Fairley of Star Farmer. Right. Um, and it got down to... Well, I asked her, you know, how come your business hasn't been sold yet? And because she's got this technology that definitely should it belongs in Big Pharma, um, the de- Dendrima technology they've got. Hmm. Uh, she says, yeah, well, I don't know, and that's where we're going to end up. Probably. Yeah, right. She says, yeah, yeah, that's what that's what's going to happen. We'll get taken over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Scott says, my mother passed away late last year and has had a small part, and she had a small parcel of AGL shares which have been left to my sister, my brother and myself. Given my sister's love affair with Mike Cannon... Uh, Brooks. Uh, Mike Cannon Brooks, I'd like to know whether she can exercise any voting rights as an executor of Mum's estate and tip her lot in with MCB. We have probate and the will is split three ways between my sister, my brother and myself. However, my sister and I are executors only, not trustees. I am ambivalent about the demerger plan per se, but being the good brother I am, I'm keen to know if she can vote on the demerger using these shares without transferring the ownership of the shares to her, which would be a pain in the ass. My activist urges only go so far. Well, no, you can't. 
you've got to vote them as a block unless they're, if, they're, if they're owned by one people, one, one entity, that entity does the vote, right? Yes. I mean, even if she's... She, uh, I guess the, the bigger question, though, is can you vote as an executor? Can you decide where the votes go? Oh, and I'm, I've no idea, I confess. I would say so. Yeah, yeah. it would make sense. An um, executor can do has control over the estate, and that's part of the estate, so it would make sense that you'd be able to. But as you can tell, everybody, we're groping around here. We are. In, in the, uh, <laughs> I think you might need some legal advice if your sister's really, really, really keen to vote the small parcel of shares. And look, it might be the difference in this uh, battle. Well, uh, the alternative, Scott, is to get on board with her. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think I think Scott's you and your, sort you of and your brother board. should just get on board with your sister. Yeah, come on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Big shout out to uh, uh, Scott's dog Barbie, who always gets a walk when he listens to the podcast. So we're doing oh, yeah. our doing our bit for pet health here. Good old Barbie. Uh, Rod's got a question, and I think we've sort of covered this, but I'll ask you as well. I was wondering if a vote for the independents meant a vote for Simon Holmes at quarters PM. In PM, I mean puppet master. And what do you think the consequences of a hung parliament will be for the ASX, especially in light of these cousin independents? Now, I don't know all of the independents uh, personally. I do, my, I do know Monique Ryan and Zoe Daniel, and right. they are nobody's puppets. Nobody's I puppets. I can tell you that. Mm. Um, and, and certainly not Simon's. I mean, Simon uh, is not a puppet master. There's no way. I mean, he's been raising some money. Some of that money's gone to these independents. Well... The money, all the money they've raised has gone to the independents, but it's not the only source of their money. Um, so, no, he won't be PM. And I'd expect very little impact of a hung parliament on the ASX. Uh, oh, no. Yeah. I, I, Zero. Yeah, because there's no... The, the ASX will fear big policy changes. A hung parliament will make big policy changes harder. And um, so there should be limited impact. I mean, it is, I suppose it's possible that a hung parliament supporting the independents will do... They'll end up doing more on climate change than either part, current party's policy yes. would uh, suggest, right? It's possible that... So what happens is they put in they put in Anthony Albanese as PM yep. and instead of going for 43% reduction in emissions by 2035, they persuade him to move it to 50%. Yeah. That's possible. I guess the counterpoint to that is, though, most... ASX-listed companies have more aggressive climate emissions reduction targets than the government. So does that net... net, net well, that's net, a good point. It's, um, well, I'm not, not sure. what do, they, do you know what their... Oh, well, I don't know what their 2035 targets are. They're all the, both, both parties, both major parties are 20, net zero by 2050, yep. which is what the, the main... Most of the companies are on about. Yeah. yeah. The question is, what's the 2035 target? Um, is it 43 or... Everyone's, every ASX company is different, um, but yeah. the, the general thrust is I mean, to the, the Greens are at, The Greens are at 70, 75% by 2035. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure there's a cohesive so set I, policy across And we don't know what the independents will require yeah. as the price of becoming Prime Minister um, for 2035. I think that's what it's going to come down to, actually. Uh you know, because the coalition is 28% by 2035. Yep. The Labor Party is uh, 43%. Uh, neither of those is adequate uh, in terms of what the what scientists say is required. Yep. Greens are 75% by 2035. So the question is, what are the what are the independents going to require as the price of becoming PM? I reckon that's the story. Yeah. Yep. 
Uh, Bertie says, I'm 60 and have missed the, uh, missed the boat in buying investment property. Can you suggest other options for investing in real estate, managed funds, ETF, etc., so I can have real estate in a portfolio? I'm just building. Uh, I'm just building. I'm new to investing altogether. Uh, what do you reckon? Well, there's lots of um, – I think he's, he's hit on this solution. If he wants to get into uh, lots of good REITs on the ASX – yeah, but they're um, all commercial property. Yeah, they're all commercial property, but that gives him a, a, a way in. If he wants to get into residential property, there's companies like, this is not a recommendation, Stockland or Mervac give you uh, a window into that. Um, yeah, it is harder to get into residential, get access to pure residential exposure. I mean, this is, uh, this is, again, not a recommendation. <laughs> However, uh, I'm a small investor in a business called Domacom, uh, which has fractional investing a platform where you can buy a small percentage of a house. Yep. Um, yep. You know, it, it depends what they've got on the market at the moment, but you can buy, you can put together a portfolio of percentage, 10%, say, of, of houses, yeah. residential houses, Birdie, using the Domacom platform. Bertie does make a good point, though, that he has a home, and so he has a big exposure to real estate. So I, I reckon think about that as to, think about that too. How much more exposure do you want to real estate in yeah, that no, rising point. rate good environment? Good point, yeah. Uh, whose turn is it? It's yours, Nathan. Uh, Nathan, I'm new to investing. I wanted to ask how much weighting you put on Morningstar quantitative stock valuations available through the CompSec app. I have a few stocks I'm looking to invest in too, and perhaps by sheer dumb luck, Morningstar determines the stocks at fair value or undervalue. It seems myopic to me to determine whether a stock is a buy or not solely on financials. AGL being a good example of this. Last time I checked, Morningstar determined the fair value to be over $12. However, with all the noise surrounding the company, surely it's impossible to predict whether the stock might tank or go to the moon. Uh, well, don't put too much stock in these things. Nathan, uh, uh, the Morningstar guys aren't – they're not using sheer dumb luck to determine whether th- something's fair value or not. They're using their models and discounted yeah. cash flow analysis and Morningstar's big on moats, so uh, how much yeah. uh, market dominance someone has. But they're just a little guide to help you think about uh, think about the stock in a different way. That's the, yeah, nothing the, more, nothing the less. The professional fund managers tend to use those quantitative – uh, valuations as a screen, a screening tool. So what they'll do is that they'll say, okay, I want to look at all the, because there's so many stocks, there's 2,000 stocks on the market or whatever, and they'll go, okay, we want to look at all the ones who are making a profit uh, and the PE, the price earnings ratio is less than whatever number, yep. uh, and then and the, um, uh, the return on equity is above X percent. And they'll screen, the, and then they'll whittle down the universe of stocks they're looking at to 50 or something. And then they'll go visit them. Yep. Uh, and they'll find out whether they like the managing director or not. That's just kind of exactly. I mean, what it's they do. just a little guide. Yep. Your turn. Felix, love the show. Just wondering what your take is on making non-concessional super contributions when in the early stages of a mortgage. My partner and I, they're 29 and 34, could save on tax and drop beneath the medical levy surcharge threshold. We don't have private health insurance. It would also boost our compounding returns journey since we have another 30 to 40 years of work ahead of us. With interest rates rising, it feels like a risky proposition. Um... Uh, certainly, interest rates rising means that it's changing the equation somewhat between paying off the mortgage and super. That's true. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, as interest rates rise, the um, returns, uh, in quotes, to you 
the investment returns from paying off your mortgage increase. Yes. So you're you're getting more of a benefit that way. I mean, look, really, you're the only one who can who can figure that out, Felix. Yeah. Um, the one thing you'd say though is with rates rising, and and as we said at the start, there could be between four and eight interest rate rises over the next two years. Let's say just to pick a number. So. Are you sure you've got your cushion sorted out in the early stages of the mortgage, where the, where the, you know the, the interest component is is really onerous? So I reckon that'd be more about what I'm thinking. What's my cushion like? Can I afford the the extra contributions? Yeah. And so, as you say, Felix, you've got thirty to forty years ahead of you, so you can probably you can probably wait a couple of years, just see how your mortgage is going, make yeah. sure you're make sure you're okay. Uh, and then in two years' time, if you find that, okay, well, we're ahead in the mortgage, we're okay, uh, and then you can put some money into, into put more money into super then maybe. Yeah. One thing I would say is the thing about saving on tax, like you should never do anything because you're going to save on tax oh, no, at I the margins. Totally agree. Like, it shouldn't but be. it is the case that if you put more into super, that'll compound yeah, better for sure. and you will end up with more in retirement. Yeah. So that, yeah. you know, it is a good idea if you can do it. Yes, yes. Uh, Callum says... A few months ago, you were talking about inflation as either temporary or a start of a trend. Uh, its effect on interest rates and the recent inflation figures have given momentum to the trend perspective. However, wasn't most of the factors that caused these inflation figures temporary? Floods, Russian invasion, COVID logistics problems, etc. So although interest rates seem silly at historic lows, these factors seem sort of temporary and so will this sustained inflation and subsequent momentum around a series of rate rises disappear in future quarters? Or knowing that Ukraine can't be un- uninvaded and global <laughs> relationships with Russia won't be mended immediately, uh, will that keep inflation sustained? Uh, well, look, I'm reading a lot of commentary at the moment, um, uh, Callum, that suggests that inflation will uh, fall again later this year. Um, that it, you know, that inflation is pretty temporary. That it will, because the uh, the global economy is is slowing pretty sharply now. Yep. Um, uh, there, uh, China's economy is slowing rapidly because of the lockdowns there, and so yeah. Look, I mean, uh, there is a there is a case for saying that inflation is is going to be temporary. Yeah, I, I must admit I disagree. I think there'll be uh, sustained inflation in energy and labour. We're an ageing population, and we're digging up less minerals, so I think there'll be sustained inflation in those areas. But whether interest rates keep rising is an interesting question because we are carrying a lot of debt and whether central banks have to go, we can't raise rates too high because we're going to wreck the economy and people's lives. And so we end up with lower rates, but higher inflation than we've seen over the last 30 years. I think that's a possible scenario too. Yeah, right. Uh, Jay, can you please explain to me what makes rent prices move and do they ever drop? It can't simply be supply and demand. My landlord used the argument that her land tax was pricier now, that her property has appreciated, and that her yield has also dropped. I mean, seriously, woe is me. She brought the property for a quarter of its current value. Yeah, that must hurt. For context, I'm renting while saving to buy, so every penny counts. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, it's been a long time since I've rented, but um, I don't reckon rent ever goes down. No. <laughs> I mean... No. It's never gone down in my... When I was renting. Yes. I, I mean... I, I guess one thing to, to note is that landlords, some landlords, good landlords, did uh, give some rent relief during the pandemic. So yeah, there's, well, there's possibly a bit of catch-up going on. Um, and inflation is going to push up 
rents. Yeah. You know, your landlord's probably not completely uh, telling you a fib when she says her costs have gone up. Now, whether she's got to pass that on, you're right, she's sitting on a gold mine. <laughs> but, yeah, um, but it's all about uh, vacancy rates, isn't it? Yeah. At the moment, vacancy rates are like 1% or less. Less. And, yes, I mean, uh, I, th- I think that landlords have got no problem renting a house. Yeah, and that, that's it's a supply Absolutely and demand. Absolutely zero again. problem. So, you know, they can more or less almost charge what they want. Yeah. Um, so when if vacancy rates get back up to whatever, 10% or something... Um, You'll have a case. <laughs> Until then, Jay... <laughs> Uh, Josh, I keep hearing that households are prepared for interest rate rises because of the high savings. But Scott Morrison justified the rate rise by saying Australians have been preparing for it. Is it possible that these cash buffers have, in fact, come from people refinancing? In other words, could those buffers actually reflect more leverage rather than people saving diligently? I refinanced during 2020 to draw out some equity in case I lost my job. I've still got it in the offset. I reckon lots of people did this. Is there a way of measuring this or can you find out for us somehow? That's a really good point, Josh. I hadn't thought of that. That I don't think it is a good point. Don't you? No. Although he does say love the show best podcast in Australia, so I love Josh. But if he's refinanced and he's got the money sitting in his offset, that's not leverage. No, but he's increased his mortgage and he's, he's got the cash sitting in the bank. He hasn't spent it yet, right? Well, he's refinanced. Yeah. So, so the question is how much of the money that's sitting in the bank has been borrowed? And, or how, cause, because, you know, famously there's $250 billion sitting in people's bank accounts, yes. right? Yeah. Which I find interesting given the fact that we are also highly leveraged. Yes. Still. Yes. So... Well, and a lot of Which it is, is it? a lot of it is sitting in offset accounts. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's still there to be drawn down on. Yeah. So some people will have refinanced and taken out some equity, but I don't think many. I mean, NAB NAB's result last week: the average person's four, or the average mortgagee for them is four years ahead on their mortgage. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of buffer. Yeah. So. Uh, Anyway, and anyway, Josh, the problem is not so much the averages, but the people at the margins. Yeah, that, that's you know, the issue. And how yeah. many people are at the margins with no buffer at all? So yeah, Josh you know, has done the right. Exa- yeah. Josh has done the smart thing yeah. and prepared himself. You know, taken out a little bit of insurance. Yeah, but when when Scott Morrison says Australians have been preparing for it, that maybe even on average Australians have been preparing for it. But there's yeah. a lot of a lot of Australians who will be in trouble. Yeah, I mean, there's a good point from some bank analysts like. You know, 75% of people are ahead on their mortgage more than three months, but it's the 25% you've got to worry about. Yeah. That's what will hit spending and stuff. So I, I wouldn't worry too much about the buffers being debt. I'd worry more about people being unwilling to draw down on those buffers. That's the interesting thing to me. Like, like so Josh has got his money in an off-centre account, right? Interest rates go up. Does Josh go, well, I want to maintain my standard of living. I want to keep spending. I'm going to draw down on that offset. And to, to keep my standard of living, keep spending. Or do people go, oh, no, getting worried here. I'm going to stop spending, thus the economy slows. Well, that's the idea. That's what, well, that's what the Reserve Bank's trying to achieve. Yes, yes. The, the stop spending, slowing economy yeah. situation, that's what it yeah. wants. But the buffers the buffers are there. I'm not sure how well that much they'll be used. I reckon people will be like Josh and be a bit cautious. Yeah, so if everyone uses their buffer, then the economy will go along, interest rates will rise, and all of a sudden it'll fall off a cliff in 12 months' time. Yeah. As everyone goes, oh, whoops, run out of buffer. Run out of buffer, yeah, maybe. Martins, uh, Ramsey Healthcare is trading well below the $88 that's been offered for the company. Does this mean the market has doubts about whether the deal will go through? 
yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly does. Uh, yeah. And, and look, it still might go through. I, I mean, I think the um, – the bidder, KKR, a big private equity firm, has done so much work on this deal and they've got the support of the Ramsey Foundation, which is the major shareholder. I reckon a deal does go through. Whether it needs a small price increase, so what's the I'm price? Not sure. What is the price that Ramsey's have far below eighty-eight bucks? Is it? I haven't looked. Oh, I'm not sure. Yeah, but, so it's, but it I might be. A, it might be a decent bet. You know, it may be that you make ten cents a share. <laughs> you know, yeah. This isn't one of your screaming buys, is it, Alan? <laughs> No, no. <laughs> Look, no, I've given that. I've taken the pledge. I'm not going to say that anymore. <laughs> no, I think uh, I think the deal goes through eventually. Yep. But um, but yeah, there is doubt. It's it's not over the line. So you often see the the stock trade just below where the the offer is. Well, it's been great, James. As always. <laughs> Thank you for squeezing us in between discussions with uh, bank CEOs. Oh, you're much more important than that, Alan, of course. (laughs) Um, uh, Very good. Okay, thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode of The Money Cafe. Uh, Stephen Mayne will be back next week joining me, so uh, send in your questions for him or me, and we'll uh, answer them. The question email is themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. See you soon.